We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Well, if you have a Bible, uh, and I hope that you do have one, and if you don't, uh, we would love to give you one. Um, But if you do have one on your phone or a hard copy, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. Lord willing, we're going to be finishing Luke chapter 9 today. Uh, And so we're going to be starting in verse uh, 37 and then going through the end of the chapter. And uh, today I want to talk about some things that we fail to understand about Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, Last week we looked at this famous passage called the Transfiguration. And we talked about how that word transfiguration gets at this idea of something's appearance changing before you so that you see it differently. And we looked at that famous passage, and and I hope that what the Lord did was allowed us to see uh, some new things about who Jesus is and his glory as the king. Not only as the king, but as God himself. Last week we looked at this glorious passage about this glorious God. And then this week, uh, our passage has us not on the mountain anymore, but down on the earth where Jesus continues to minister and continues to speak about his kingdom and its nature and what things look like in following him. And so I hope that, once again, the Holy Spirit will allow us to see some things that maybe we haven't seen before or to uh, learn them in even deeper ways as he applies them to our own lives and our own hearts about following Jesus and what it means to be a part of his kingdom and to understand what it is that Jesus has set out to do. So I hope you'll look with me. We'll start in verse 37, and there's going to be uh, five things that I want you to see this morning. Uh, And for you note-takers, I'll read through them real quickly, and then we'll walk through each one just a little bit. But here's the five things that we must remember because we fail to understand them so often. Is that the Son of God, this glorious Son of God that we looked at last week, he cares for the sons of men cares for human beings, you and me. Second thing is that the words of God are a mystery without his help, without him revealing them to us. And third, we're going to see that the kingdom of God is upside down. It looks different than we expect a kingdom to look. And then we'll see that the will of God is often misunderstood by us, just as it was by the disciples. And finally, we'll look at how following Jesus involves a cost. While salvation is free, following Jesus costs us something, and we're going to look at that. So look with me, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 37. I'm going to read the first section here, and then we'll talk about that first point, and then we'll 
uh, continue on in the passage. So here's what Luke writes for us just after the transfiguration when Jesus is, uh, the disciples get a preview of his glory, of how he actually is as the Son of God, and now he's come down from the mountain. It says, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Did you catch that last part? All were astonished at the majesty of God. You see, Peter, James, and John, they have this experience with the majesty of God in the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, on the mountain, where they see him in all his glory. They see him as he actually is. They get a preview of the kingdom by looking at the king. And they see him in all his beauty and grandeur. And then Jesus comes down from the mountain. And once again, even though there's no shining radiance that's brighter than the sun, even though there's no Moses and Elijah appearing talking with Jesus about God's grand redemptive plans and what Jesus is about to accomplish, no, instead, this is just Jesus, the man, the God-man, who is in the midst of of broken, hurting people, ministering to them. This father, he comes, and he's heard some things about Jesus and what he can do, and he says, Jesus, my, my only son. He begs him, begs him, Jesus, would you do something for him? Would you heal him? Would you deliver him? And Jesus after this man tells him how his disciples had failed to heal this little boy, he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long will I have to bear with you? And the reason he says this is because if you remember, he, he had given his disciples authority over the demons. And yet here, they're not able to cast this demon out and to help this little boy despite having Jesus' authority bestowed upon them. They had what they needed, and they were unable to do it. Why? Jesus says, Jesus' rebuke is not, not to this grieving father who's trying to help his son. I think it's more pointed at the disciples, and, and, and Jesus says this generation, so, so maybe even broader than the disciples, but he's getting at this, this idea that oftentimes God gives us exactly what we need for what we're facing. But we don't have the faith in him, the trust in him to use what he's given us. 
You see what I mean? And what I'm not getting at here, I I want to be clear about this. There's something called the prosperity gospel, and it is a false gospel. And by false gospel, I mean it is no gospel at all, because it's not good news. But the prosperity gospel, which is unbiblical, unhopeful, there's no hope to be found in it, essentially says that with your problems in life, the reason that you have them is because you have too little faith, and that if you just had more faith, then your problems would be washed away. If you just had enough faith, you could heal your sick loved one. If you just had enough faith, then you could pay your bills this month. This is the prosperity gospel. This is what is taught. This is what is taught by many men and women who have thousands of followers, who have TV shows and radio shows, podcasts, This is what many people proclaim, and they proclaim it as though it were the Christian gospel, but it is the furthest thing from it. It is not the good news. It's bad news, because here's the thing. The only ones who benefit from the prosperity gospel are those at the top who are proclaiming it. Because they use it as a money-making scheme where they convince the vulnerable, the poor and defenseless to give them more of their money in faith that it'll somehow fix their lives. And it doesn't. They give their money. They believe with all their might and their child still dies. I remember a story, there's a very large, uh, I believe it's non-denominational, more charismatic leaning church in California, and they proclaimed this false gospel. And there was either a staff member or a church member that him and his wife, they're, their two-year-old, had died. And instead of helping this couple grieve their tremendous loss, they told them, if you would just believe enough, if you'll just have enough faith, then God will raise your daughter from the dead. And so for weeks... They didn't, they didn't grieve their loss. They, they just continued to believe with all their might. And nothing changed. Devastating news is what that is. False gospel does not begin to get at the horrible treachery that that is. And it is so prevalent. If you've not encountered it, or I assure you, you have encountered it, you just didn't see it before. And you will now. You'll know what it is when you hear it. 
And what Jesus is saying in this passage is not that. He is not saying, if you'll just believe enough, then all your problems will be washed away. No, he's offering a rebuke to his followers who have already received what they needed to minister to this hurting man and his son. He's not saying, if you just believe enough, everything's going to work out for you. Because Jesus actually teaches the opposite of that, that walking with him, following him, trusting in him, it doesn't just make life easy. Instead, it involves hardship. Following Jesus is hard. It's not the message you preach to build a large church, is it? But it is what Jesus teaches us. Following him is hard, and as we're going to see at the end of the message today, it actually costs us something. But Jesus, he's saying, faithless and twisted generation. He's getting at our lack of faith, our problem of not trusting God. But he's not saying, if you would just believe, then everything's going to work out how you want it to. That's not what he's saying at all. But he's getting at a real problem that each of us has. And that's our doubt of the one who has always been good. Jesus says, faithless and twisted generation, how long will I bear with you? Because he longs for us to believe him, to trust him, to have faith in him. And he's really the only one worthy of our faith. Everyone and everything else fails us at some point. But Jesus is always faithful He always does what is good and right and true. And he is worthy of our trust and our faith. He is the glorious son of God who has come down from the mountain to care for the sons of men. You see, Jesus, there's this story that David Platt tells of when he was overseas speaking with a couple of men that came from different religious backgrounds than he did. David Platt, he's a pastor, Christian, and he's speaking with these two men. I believe one of them was Muslim, and I forget what other religious background the other guy came from, but they were talking about the differences between their religions. And David Platt, he, as a pastor, he's trying to share the good news with these two men. And he's talking with them about what makes Christianity so different. And these men are saying to him, David... David, Christianity is no different than our religions. It may, it, may, it may look different, but really, when it comes down to it, they're all the same. And so David said, so, so do you mean to tell me, imagine that there, there was God at the top of this mountain, and that the three of us are just on different sides of the mountain, and what we're all doing is we're taking different paths up the mountain trying to work our way up to God by doing his will and, and doing good things for others. And, and they said, yes, that's exactly what we're saying. It's all the same. 
As long as you believe in God and uh, you just take your path to him uh, through living the best life that you can. And David said, that doesn't seem like good news to me. What if I told you something different? What if I told you that the God who rules from on top of the mountain instead of expecting us to work our way up to him, came down the mountain entirely to rescue us. And I said, that would be incredible. And he said, that's who Jesus is. You see, friends, he is the glorious son of God who on the mountaintop in the transfiguration is revealed in all his glory before Peter, James, and John. And then two minutes later, he's walking down the mountain because he is going to heal this little boy and deliver him from the darkness. He is not the God who sits on the mountaintop in all his glory and waits for us to try to work our way up to him. He is the God who comes down and is in the midst of the mess with us because he wants to rescue us. He wants to deliver us. The Son of God cares for the sons of men, and this is one of the things that we often fail to understand. He cares for this little boy. There's so much more that we could say about this passage, but we've got we've to move on. The second, second thing I want you to see this morning that we often fail to understand is that the words of God are a mystery without his help. Look at me, 43 through 45. Jesus is again foretelling his death. It says, but while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. So he's saying, He's saying, hear what I'm about to say. Listen closely. Let these words sink in. What I'm about to tell you is important. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man, he's talking about himself, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. You see, the second thing we have to understand that we fail to understand is that the words of God are a mystery without his help. I want to give you a couple of illustrations to to kind of help understand what's happening here, because there's a couple of phrases I want you to notice. The first one is in verse 45 at the beginning where they say, where it says, but they did not understand his saying. So if, you, if you're an underliner, you can underline that. And then the second part is that, and it was concealed from them. So I want to talk about these two phrases just a little bit and give you a couple illustrations. Let's talk about the first one. They did not understand this saying. You guys ever heard of selective hearing? If you're married, you know this concept, okay? If you're a parent, you know this concept because your kids have it too. Um, you know, particularly wives and moms understand this, okay? Um, and so God's grace be upon you, ladies. Thank you <laughs> for being patient with us. But um, selective hearing is this idea that, you know, if, if my wife tells me to do something, I only hear the parts that I really want to hear, 
I, I totally grasp and comprehend and understand those parts, but I don't hear the fullness of what she's saying, because my hearing is selective. I don't understand fullness of what she's trying to communicate to me because my hearing is selective. I only hear the things that I want to hear. And I would just submit to you that that's kind of what's happening here in this passage when the disciples don't understand this saying of Jesus when he says the Son of Man's about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's once again saying, I'm about to die, and they're choosing to not hear him when he says this. Because of what they already believe. You see, you and I, we come into our relationship with God with preconceived notions about what God should be like. And our whole relationship with him is is him chipping off those edges and showing us who he actually is. And continually surprising us because our preconceived notions are nothing compared to who he actually is. You see, and so the disciples, they have this preconceived notion about what the Messiah was supposed to do. He was supposed to come and conquer the Romans. He was supposed to deliver his people from the oppressive rule that was over them. And so when Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ, he's right. But his beliefs about the Christ need some work. And and isn't it good news that God is so gracious with us? He's so gracious. Jesus is so gracious with his disciples who just continually, like, even though they're right next to Jesus, they just keep getting it wrong. (laughs) Especially Peter. I mean, Peter just gives me so much hope. One day, we're all going to meet Peter, and he's going to be like, man, I did not realize how many jokes were going to get told about me. You know, and I'll probably tell him, yeah, I'm sorry, you know, I told some of this. Um, but, but, but I mean, it's just such good news that the disciples are, are kind of blundering their way through life like you and me. They're trying to figure out this thing following Jesus, and, and they continually misunderstand and, and fail to see some things as they should. And one of those things is that Jesus had to die. That this was God's will. They didn't, they didn't want to understand that, though. They didn't want to hear that. And so when Jesus continues to tell them, they don't understand it. They don't hear it when he says it, even though he says it repeatedly. That's how selective hearing is, right? You can say something to someone that you love and tell them to do something over and over again and they just continue to not hear you because really they don't want to do that thing. That's how selective hearing works. And so, so the first thing I want you to see is they don't understand this saying. But then the second thing is that it was actually concealed from them so that they wouldn't understand it and perceive it as it was. So, so here's my second illustration. You know, sometimes how, how parents will spell words out so that their kids don't understand their meaning as they're having an adult conversation. So, so they'll, they'll spell it out. And, and, and it's really funny to me because parents will continue to spell it out even though their kid's like 12 and can spell. You know? And, and, and the kid's just sitting there like, Mom, I learned how to spell in like third grade. Second or third grade, like I had most of the words. It was like, we're good, you know. 
<laughs> but, but we just keep doing this, right? And, and, and so, but parents will spell words out so that their little ones don't understand their meaning when they're having an adult conversation. They'll conceal their meaning from the kids, and, and Jesus here, the Holy Spirit here, is still concealing the meaning of what Jesus is saying for the disciples because it's not yet time for this to have, for this to be completely revealed to them so that they'll truly understand it. You see, when God speaks, we need his spirit to help us understand his words or we won't. Paul tells us that spiritual truths are spiritually discerned, meaning we need the Spirit's help to understand the words of God. And so for you and I to understand the good news of Jesus Christ and to trust in him, we need God's Holy Spirit to work in us and reveal himself to us and give us understanding of the gospel. We need God to do a supernatural, miraculous work in us so that we will trust in Jesus. We need God to reveal to us what was concealed from us. And the disciples, as, as Jesus is predicting his death once again, he's, he's foretelling it, telling them, this is going to happen to me. They don't understand it, I believe, because they don't want to understand it. And then also, because God had not yet given them the understanding that they did not have yet. And so there's both of these things happening here. And what we've got to see is that we need God's help to understand who he is and what he's wanting to do in us. We need God's spirit to help us to understand God's plans and God's words. And once again, there's good news here because like we talked about a couple Wednesdays ago when we talked about the Holy Spirit, a, a great prayer to pray when you open this book is, is, Spirit of God, would you help me to understand the word that you have inspired? And it's a prayer he wants to answer. God wants us to know him. That's why he's given us his word. That's why he's revealed himself to us. Have you ever just stopped to think about the fact that God has spoken to you? I don't mean that you've heard the audible voice of God. Very few people ever have or ever will. But when you read this book, God speaks to you. God speaks through his word. He wants you to know him. That's an amazing, profound, big, beautiful truth. That there are mysteries of the universe, and I mean God's redemptive plans. That he wants you to see and understand in the person and work of his son. And though it was concealed from the disciples in this moment, one day it would be revealed to them and it has been revealed to us so that we would turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Let's move on to the third thing I want you to see here, that the kingdom of God is upside down. 46 through 48, here's what we read. 
An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, it's always so intimidating when you read those kind of verses because Jesus, Jesus has complete x-ray vision. He sees right through you. He can see every heart's desire, every thought of your mind. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Talking about his father. For he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. Did you notice how quickly the disciples have forgotten some things that Jesus has already said? I mean, we're so quick to forget what God has said to us, what he's taught us. You see, the king, we forget that the kingdom of God is not as we should expect it to be, but it's, it's upside down. It's different than we expect. You see, a few weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus said that Following him involves denial of self. It involves dying to yourself and taking up your cross to follow him. And here the disciples are already, like five minutes after this sermon from Jesus about what it means to follow him, already, once again, there's this argument that comes up about who is the greatest among them. They just continually miss the point. And so do we. We continually forget the things that Jesus was trying to teach us last week, right? Yesterday, this morning before you came here, or before you turned the video on, we are so prone to forget and prone to wander. And, and part of that, I think, is because the kingdom of God really is upside down. It's, it's different than you would expect a kingdom to be. It's flipped on its head. The things that you would expect to be great are actually least. The things that you would expect to be least in the kingdom are actually great. And so here's the deal. Like as, I, as I think about this concept that the, the least are the greatest in the kingdom of God... That, that means, like, I'm the pastor. I do the preaching on Sunday mornings most of the time. I'm probably not the greatest in the kingdom. I'm probably not. You know who probably is? Those of you who clean the pews after service. Those of you who do things behind the scenes that make it possible for us to gather for worship. As if you make it possible for people who can't be here to gather with us from afar. You see, the, the kingdom of God is flipped on its head. And so, I mean, here's just one implication of this. I want, I want you to know that, like, there is no little task in the kingdom of God. There is no little way to serve Jesus. Because even the littlest things that Jesus asks you to do have a kingdom impact 
matter for people's lives and eternity. But we continually misunderstand this. We fail to see it. This upside down nature of the kingdom. Jesus, he's as a child to illustrate this. You see, we have to understand in the ancient world, women and children were at best second class citizens. At best. Women, their testimony wasn't valid in a lot of court proceedings. Children were viewed uh, as kind of a nuisance a lot of the time. Yeah, they were a gift from the Lord, but they were also a, a, a nuisance. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't prized and, and treasured and like valued as having any kind of social standing. And so uh, throughout the Gospels, you just see like kids trying to come to Jesus and then like grown men like saying, nope, stay away. The teacher's working. And they keep them from coming to Jesus. And Jesus just continually rebukes them. And he's like, stop. My kingdom belongs to those who come to me like children. Jesus says here, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I mean, Jesus is the son of God. So receiving the son means receiving the father. And then Jesus sets a child in front of the disciples who are arguing about who's the greatest. And then they see one that they view as the least. And Jesus says, if you receive the least, then you receive me. Ought to, it, ought to change how we, it ought to change how we view children. It ought to change how we view people in general. I mean, Jesus' kingdom and, and the way that he views people is just so different. It's upside down. It ought to shape the way that we see the people around us and it ought to shape the way that we understand what he's trying to do and what his kingdom is like. But we are so quickly tempted by our pride and we forget to see God's glory and the humility of his son. I mean, have you ever thought about that? That you see the grandeur of the glory of God himself in the humility of his son as he comes down the mountain and he heads to the cross. And in the world's eyes, there's nothing glorious about that cross. But on the cross, those who have been given ears to hear and eyes to see, we understand that this was the will of God, and in him we see his glory on display. Because it was God's plan to send his son, whom he loved, whom he loves out of love for us to save us and rescue us and deliver us from sin. So we fail to understand that the kingdom of God is upside down and then we fail to understand that the will of God is often misunderstood. 49 through 56, here's what we read. And it's broken down into two paragraphs probably in your 
translation. So we'll look at the first one and the second one. John answered, Master, and I want you to hear this, hear what John's about to say. Hear these two passages as though it were like a child coming to their parent and they're like so excited about what they've just done. And, and the parent is about to not be as excited, okay? But so like read this as John is so thrilled to come to Jesus with this news, okay? Here's what he says. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. See, he's expecting praise from Jesus. He's thinking Jesus is going to be like, oh, well done, well done. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Jesus is like, how ridiculous is that? That's so ridiculous. Like, he's doing a good thing, and he's, he's doing it in my name. Like, why would you stop him? Why would you stop him? He's not against you. He's for you. He's about the same things that you're about. Why would you stop him? And, and John's just like, oh, this did not go as I was expecting. He expected Jesus to say, like, well done, good and faithful one. I mean, that's what he was expecting. And that's not what he got from Jesus. And this is the thing, is that we often misunderstand God's will. And we misunderstand it as we see here. We, we misunderstand God's will uh, towards those who are not against us, but actually for us. So they're, they're like us in a lot of ways. And then we, we're also going to see next that we, we misunderstand God's will towards those who are not like us as well. So, so here we see there's, <laughs> there's this man casting out demons in Jesus' name, and John stops him. John and the other disciples, they stop him. They're like, none of that nonsense, only us, because we are the greatest. You, you see the pride? You see how pride blinds us to good things that God is doing. So they stop him. And, and, and when I read this, I just thought about how... Listen, denominations can be a really beautiful thing. Okay? I'm, I'm a Southern Baptist unapologetically. I am a Baptist pastor. I feel no qualms about that. Um... But sometimes we take, and here's why denominations can be good. Denominations can be really good because they're a way that we can identify ourselves with other believers in Christ, other brothers and sisters who, who, who on some secondary issues, like we line up pretty closely together. And it's really helpful because if we can serve together with, with those who, for example, with baptism, believe that baptism is for believers who have trusted in Jesus Christ themselves, that it's a public profession of faith, then, then it allows us to serve on mission together. Because if, uh, imagine you're on the mission field and, and you're a Baptist and then there's a Presbyterian friend of yours and, and you're serving together, there's a lot of things that you can do together for the kingdom of God. Lots of good things that we can do with our brothers and sisters who we disagree with on some secondary, tertiary matters. But say, I mean, you guys are evangelizing, and then somebody gets saved. Well, you're going to want to 
you're going to want to baptize the person who got saved, and your Presbyterian friend is going to want to baptize them and their kids, and their, and their, their newborn. And, and so you've just got some different practices because you disagree on a couple of more secondary matters. Not, I say secondary not to say that they're not important, but to acknowledge that we have some, some differences, even amongst those who are for us, right? We're for one another. And so denominations can be a, a really beautiful, helpful thing. Okay? But what I often see happen is people from different denominations looking down upon one another, discrediting some of the good things that Jesus is doing through another church. And this is different than, you know, uh, churches that aren't actually churches that are preaching false gospels. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about believers in Christ who agree on the main things but disagree on some secondary and tertiary things. And they want people to know Jesus. And yet then they, they, they almost like condemn one another for their disagreements and they look down on each other. And, and they refuse to do any work together. Nope. I'm, I'm a Presbyterian. You're a charismatic. I can't. We can't. We can't be friends. Or I'm a Baptist. You're a Presbyterian. We can't be friends. You know, and and it's just ridiculous. Okay. You ought to have some friends that disagree with you on some things. If you don't have some friends that disagree with you on some things, then there's probably some bigger things in your life that we need to look at. Okay. But. We can have people who are doing great things for Jesus' kingdom, and we shouldn't stop them because we disagree on some things or, or we're not a part of the same group or tribe. John, John thinks because the, this guy is not with the other disciples that he needs to stop what he's doing. But what he's doing is in service to Jesus and his kingdom, and it's a good thing. And so he misunderstands God's will as someone who's for him. And then we get to the next passage, and here's what we read. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, talking about Jesus, he set his face to go towards Jerusalem, to go to Jerusalem. So he's, this is his mission. This is where he is focused. He is headed to the cross to accomplish that deliverance that we talked about last week for his people. 52, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now, you've got to understand the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as like filthy half-breeds, and the Samaritans did not like the Jews either. There was some real animosity between them. So Jesus, he sends some of his disciples ahead as messengers and says, hey, the teacher's coming. Um, Is there any place he can stay? Um, and verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem, which is where the, the center of Jewish worship and, and religion, I mean, this is, this is where it was, and the Samaritans did not believe that it was meant to be there. They thought differently, that it was meant to be somewhere else. So they did not agree, and 
And they rejected Jesus because of this. They said, no, you can't come here. Verse 54, look at how the disciples react to this, though. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And again, you got to imagine they're thinking Jesus is going to be like, I cannot believe that you would be willing to do that for me. Go ahead. Flame on. Get it done. You know, I mean, this is the the kind of attitude they're coming to Jesus with. They think Jesus is going to be really pleased with what they're offering to do for him. That he's going to say, oh, you would burn an entire village to the ground out of your love for me. Well done. Go ahead. And they're expecting praise for this. Because they see people rejecting Jesus completely. And they know Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one that they've longed for, that the prophets have told them about for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And and they expect Jesus to be totally on board with this. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Jesus just rebukes them real quick, and they move on, you know. It's kind of comical sometimes how you, I mean, the transition there just makes me laugh a little bit. He rebuked them and they just went to another village. You know, they just kind of moved on from the disciples wanted to murder this entire village <laughs> for not having a room for Jesus to stay. <laughs> you know, um, they, they're, they're like, Lord, we can tell fire to come down from heaven. And they expect Jesus to be pleased with this. And, and this is often the thing about us, right? We, we do things, we say things, and we really expect God to be pleased with what we're doing and saying. But the problem is, is that you and I, we often misunderstand his will. We often don't see it clearly. And so we, we do things and we say things that, that we think are pleasing to God and that are not a part of the nature of his kingdom and his character at all. I mean, I, I think that the way that a lot of us walk through this year, I think there are a lot of instances in which if we were standing next to Jesus and we said, Jesus, I saw this person doing this and I did this. I, th- I don't think Jesus would be pleased with us. And I'm throwing myself in that too. We often do things that we think are going to be pleasing to God, and they're not because we totally misunderstand as well. The good news is that God wants to reveal himself to us, and he has given us his will and his word. So the fourth thing is that the will of God is often misunderstood and we, we often misunderstand the kingdom because it's upside down. And, and finally, I want you to see this morning because I know we've got to get out of here. This is the last thing. I'll make it quick. I want you to see that we fail to understand that following Jesus costs us something, that there is a cost of following Jesus. And I'm not saying that salvation is a free gift of God. Paul, Paul says so. 
in his letters to us. He says it's by grace through faith. It's a free gift of God extended to us. So I'm not talking, I'm not talking about salvation, that you have to pay something for salvation. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that following Jesus, being a disciple of his, learning from him and continuing to walk with him will cost you something. Look with me at, at the end of our passage here. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I want you to see there's three, three men who come to Jesus, three, three people, and, and they say things about following him, and Jesus has a different response for each of them. It costs them something different. 58, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds, have the air, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he's saying, there's not going to be any comfort, there's not going to be any shelter. If you're going to follow after me, you're not going to have a home. I'm going to be your only home. It's not going to be comfortable. 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I think we often misunderstand what's happening here. Jesus, I don't, I don't believe Jesus is, is looking at, at this man's dead father just lying there and saying, have somebody dead, go bury him. Because that's not possible. That's not what Jesus is getting at. I think what's happening here, we miss it because we don't understand some of the culture and, and some of the keys. But I think what's actually happening here is, is this man is, is saying, I want to follow you, Jesus. But I've got some responsibilities at home to my dad who currently owns the family business. And I've got responsibilities back home. Let me, let me go take care of my responsibilities. And then once my father has passed away, and, and then I've inherited the business, and, and, and I'm solely responsible for it, then I'll have more freedom to do what I want to do, and I can follow you then. And Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. And I think what he's getting at is, is not the physically dead, but the spiritually dead. Those who, those who are caring about and concerned about the things of the world over the things of God, the things of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, you can't say you want to follow me and be about the kingdom of God while still clinging to the things of the world. It costs you something to follow me and to be about kingdom work. The first man, it costs him comfort, even shelter. Second man, it costs him maybe even his family business. And the, the third one, yet another, said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This third man, I think it costs him relationships. I think he's saying, Jesus, I want to follow you, but, but my family and friends, they're not going to understand this. Can you just let me go back and say a proper goodbye and, and explain to them why I'm making this decision? Because I don't think they're going to understand that this is the right decision for me. And, and I need to go talk this through with them so that they understand before I go do this. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you something. Because people in your life aren't going to understand. 
They're not going to understand why you leave everything that you've had for something completely new that they don't understand. Relationships may be what following Jesus costs you. Comfort may be what following Jesus costs you. Financial resources, maybe a career, might be what following Jesus costs you. And, and I'm not saying these things to say, listen, find something that, that this has to cost you. That's not what I'm saying. But for each of us, there are things that we tend to treasure more than we treasure Christ. And following him and being his disciple must cost us those things so that we let go of them and cling to him. Following Jesus costs you something, but it's a good cost because he is worth more than anything this world has to offer you. Than anything. He is worth more than your business or your career. He is worth more than your relationships with family and friends. He is worth more than your life itself. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your faith and your affection. When he says, follow me, don't cling to anything. Let it all go. And follow him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, there is so much that we fail to understand about who you are and what your kingdom is like. And so, God, we come to you asking for your wisdom, asking for your help. Spirit of God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that understand and and want to know you more, love you more. God, would you not let us cling to anything in this life that seeks to distract us from clinging to you? Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to follow you? And I pray for maybe a friend that is out there that is wrestling with that decision for the first time. God, would you give them faith? Would you help them to trust you and to walk with you and follow you all their days? And Lord, would you give them the courage to tell somebody that follows you about that decision to accept your free gift of salvation and to pay whatever it costs and being discipled by you and becoming more like you. So God, help us as we seek to do that. Guide us, keep us, strengthen us, and give us faith to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.